everyone. So I'm pleased to introduce my uh, friend of mine, someone I've known for a while, Louis Melmadrono, who's an author of many books that I've read many, but the Coyote Trilogy is the, the one that is uh, folks know a lot about. I actually particularly am interested, I use narrative medicine in my teaching over the years uh, for many of my students. And uh, he's a, he, it's interesting because Lewis is a family physician, but he's also a psychiatrist. And he's particularly interested, I'm particularly interested in his work because of his use of narrative. And I felt like for our particular audience, uh, narrative is very, vital to what we're doing in terms of healing. So I'm very happy to welcome Lewis to our call today. Lewis, welcome and thanks for being here. Thank you. Happy to be here. And so Lewis, I, can you tell me a little bit about sort of the origins of how your work emerges out of narrative, you know, how narrative emerges into your work? Well, I think I emerged out of narrative <laughs> as, a, as an indigenous person. I arose through story. I was born into a world of, of story that my grandparents told. And I really didn't know anything but story. So for me, story was everything. And I was surprised to discover that Europeans had some concept of story also. And so um, I've been I've been working to straddle these two worlds. The world of, of Native American story and the world of narrative philosophy and, and medicine and psychology from from a more European context. And to try and and understand them as at least overlay overlapping, if not similar, if not the same, you know, to to try to make sense of of these different perspectives and to and to weave them together to the extent that I can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting because this, so it's from my understanding, the story is essential to 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 make the Native American life. It's essential to all our lives in a lot of ways. But for some reason, when medicine, it's like it kind of develops in our in our more conventional setting, the story part kind of gets left out, in a way. Well, you know, medicine has had a love affair with positivism, empiricism, um, with this idea that there is a truth to be discovered in independent of context, relationship, um, environment, that some things are just fact. And it's not really supported by the data, actually. That, that the research literature doesn't actually support that point of view, but it seems to be the essence of medicine. And you know, I was I was talking with one of one of our trainees just last night about how we think without history, we act as if whatever we're doing today, we've always done it that way, and it's the absolute truth. 
And we ignore the fact that five years ago we were doing things radically different. We thought that was the absolute truth. Something changed. And now we pretend that we've always thought the way that we think today. And, and I think without that perspective on history, we, we become rigid. Mm. We lose this sense that we're just approximating reality and we could be wrong. Mm. And that's so important to appreciate. Mm, interesting. So yeah, we can examine, you know, I could examine the medical perspective, but I guess I want to stay moving forward. How do you see that changing in the way that medicine is beginning to embrace you know, holism, narrative medicine, a broader perspective, or I mean, I could say, is it, but I think we would agree it is in some ways or another. So how would you say that, see that? It is. And, and it's small. Mm. It is in, in certain academic circles. Mm -hmm. But in the day-to-day -day practice of medicine, no. It hasn't, it hasn't really spread out to that right. extent. Right. You know, and, and in, in some small academic circles, we're thinking about story and about the importance of people's story to understand why they do what they do and, and to understand how we might interact with them to change what they do in a good way. At least we think it's a good way. Mm -hmm. um, or at least to acknowledge that we've heard their story. And by and large, that's pretty radical outside of small segments of academia. Mm -hmm. You know, the rank and file of medicine is not doing this. And, and we change that over the next 20 years if we can. You know, this is, this is the goal. The project really is to transform how medicine is practiced over the next 20 years. Right. Right. Which is interesting. And you've been at this for a little while. And so it's interesting to hear you say we haven't, you know, it hasn't had a big inroad at this stage. I mean, would you say that the, the, the integrative community is, 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 is bringing narrative in and bringing story in? Not as much as I would have hoped, because, because the integrative community is struggling to look good to the dominant cultural medicine. And what that means is to embrace empiricism and positivism and the randomized controlled trial and and just the facts. Right. And and so so the integrative community I think is is a bit behind embracing narrative as well because Everyone is trying to operate within this narrow biomedical paradigm which says what is true and what is not true based on large-scale randomized controlled trials, right. which are not necessarily the best way to learn about human beings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, so, and how about psychiatry? Well, I think psychiatry is behind mm. that... that um, you know, there's elements of psychiatry that are incredibly embracing of narrative. And, and there's other books besides mine being written about narrative psychiatry. 
the idea of the importance of this story. There's a segment of psychoanalysis, which has brought itself into this narrative paradigm by talking about how we make meaning together by the stories we tell each other. So, um, yes, definitely it's happening. Um, and, and yes, it's still an uphill journey in the face of this, this predominant biomedical paradigm that treats everything with medications, which is what we are trying to overcome, really, to change. It almost, what begs me to ask you is what's the, what story would you tell to describe this state of medicine today? But I, in a way, that's putting you on the spot. Uh, but maybe there's a story that, come, that, that this, this fits, this, uh, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, the project was to discover the truth. And, and it, was, it was kind of a platonic ideal, I think, that there was a truth. That, that you could figure out what was the right thing to do for any given condition. And, and I think it turns out that there is no right thing to do for any given condition, that it's not so black and white, mm -hmm. and that people are more important often than what we treat people with. That, that I read an article in, in the British Medical Journal, which was... Um, syndicated on the BBC that placebos are dramatically growing in power and efficacy over the past 20 years. Mm. And, and so, um, you know, we wanted it to be simple. We wanted it to be straightforward, physical, you know, mechanical, logically positive, you know, if, if I do X, Y results, and it's much more complicated than that. Mm. It has to do with people's beliefs and cultures and stories and attitudes and poverty and life conditions. And it's, it's messy. And no one wanted that. Everyone wanted something clean and pristine. And people, you know, I think the project was to get away from people's lives. Mm -hmm. this, this is what we were promised in the 50s. So we could create a, a clean science that was divorced from the messiness of people's lives. And, and where we're at today is that this, this sad realization for some, and, and of course many are in denial of this, what I consider to be true, that we can't escape the messiness of people's lives. That it's, it's the soup within which we work. And that you can't talk about drug efficacy without talking about for whom and in what context and under what circumstance. And, and that's so frustrating for people who wanted this pure science mm. that, that in which they could not talk to people about their feelings and beliefs and traumas and, and culture and all of this messy stuff. Mm. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're describing it. To me, it's very accurate. I, 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 you know, see the world in similar ways. And so, you know, and I've been reading your the book, the title of the book that you, the, the book on narrative psychiatry or how narrative medicine can come into psychiatry. And what I'd love to for you to share with us is a little bit about the way, rather than using drugs in psychiatry, you're able to 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 bring story as a healing technique. You know, you use story as a as a motivation or as a stimulator of healing. Well, when you think about it, <clears throat> you know, we 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 tell ourselves over and over multiple times a day who we are. And if I tell myself that I'm a person who can never get better over and over and over and over, then what are what are my odds of getting better? And if I tell myself that everything I do turns out badly, so why should I do anything? You know, and, and I, I'm thinking about a patient I saw today who, who is convinced that anything that's done will, will make her worse. And, and lo and behold, she doesn't get better. Mm. And of course, mostly what's been done for her is drugs. I mean, no one said, look, where did this story come from? That things always get worse. Well, you know, I know just from glancing the surface that she has a substantial childhood trauma history. You know, that as a child, things always did get worse. Nothing ever got better. And and that that's been repeated in her life over and over and over. So she performs a story that then gets set upon her, which is that things always get worse. So she expects it, it's set upon her, it's performed, it's realized, and the cycle is repeated. And so, so we were sitting there and she said to me, this is really depressing, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it really is. She said, I can't think of a single positive thing to say. And I said, how about baseball? Because she had on a baseball um, windbreaker. She said, I love baseball. And I said, well, there you go. Here's something positive. You love baseball. And she said, but baseball season is over. And I said, not in South America. There must be some, some channels or YouTube or something where you could watch baseball in South America because it's warm there. You know, it's the opposite of us. Mm -hmm. And she said, yeah, I could do that. I said, watch Colombia play Uruguay. That must be fascinating for Cuba. Play Ecuador. And, and she got really excited. You know, the first time I'd seen her excited in the whole interview. And, and, and then we got to talking about those damn Red Sox who didn't win. Again. And I said, well, who won the pennant? I said, I, when, the Red Sox, when the Red Sox lost, I just gave up all hope and started watching the Patriots. Because they're doing okay. You know, and she said, yeah, Patriots are okay, but I love baseball. 
you know, and so we had, we were starting to have an interesting conversation, which we hadn't had before, mm. about something that she loved and something that gave her pleasure, which, you know, it is completely outside the standard interview template for what you're supposed to talk about right. you know, in a psychiatric interview. And, and yet, here we have the glimmers of hope. But there was something that she loved mm -hmm. that, that could occupy her interests. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, that this is part of what we're talking about is how to find the positive in people, how to find the things that, that bring them out as, as heroes, bring them out as adventurers, bring them out as positive characters. Here's a woman who likes baseball. And, and that's so much more interesting than here's a woman who's depressed and she's tried all these drugs and nothing has worked and nothing ever works and she always gets worse and drugs always make her worse and nothing can help her. Well, that's not going anywhere. Mm. So, um, you know, I think this is really the beauty of, of narrative work is that we tease out what's positive about people and what can empower them further, what can move them down the road toward recovery, really, is what right. we're aiming for. Right. Yeah. Yeah, what I, well, I, there's two things that I hear from that. One is what you're describing. I use the word salutogenesis. You must notice that word salutogenesis. It's salutary. It's healing. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're also defining story very, very broadly that th this, you, it doesn't have to be story in some formal sense of story. You know, baseball, it's, you found a piece of her. That's part of her narrative. That's the way she sees the world versus I have to give her something from outside. You're just, you found something from inside. Right. Her story is, I'm a person who loves baseball. Right. And, and that's, so, you know, that's floating on top of, I'm a person for whom nothing ever works. I'm a person who always gets worse. I'm a person who no one likes. I'm a person who never gets better. I'm a person who only gets worse. I'm a person who should kill myself because I'm taking up excess space. You know, those are the other aspects of her story. Mm. So that I'm a person who loves baseball is really positive compared to these other stories. So how do you get her to start to inhabit that story? I mean, that's where the healing comes in. That's to say for those who, you know, read some of your work, you tell lots of stories of how people begin to inhabit these stories. And that's where their healing grows in that way. Right. So we explore baseball. Mm. And, and I don't know, you know, I only saw her for the first time today. But if I were to continue to work with her, I would look for baseball stories and get her looking for baseball and, and find out what is it about baseball that you really love so much? What, is, what does baseball do for you? And, and she gave me a clue today. You know, she said, in baseball, baseball, people just purely do. They hit the ball, they catch the ball. There's, there's no subtext. 
And so I'm thinking, well, for her, baseball is just about play and interaction without the innuendos of life. You know, that she's grown up in a world in which probably nothing is ever the way you think it is. And people don't say what they mean. And, and there's abuse. And so baseball is refreshing because there's rules. And there's umpires. And, and you have to follow the rules or the umpires will throw you out of the game. And it's all about hitting and catching and running. And, and it makes sense. You can, you can, it's straightforward. It's not subtle and complicated and diffuse and hard to figure out. So I think what she's saying is, look, you know, the rest of my life is, is completely puzzling. But baseball is understandable. There's rules. I can learn them. I know what's going to happen. And, and, you know, so we want to somehow bring that sense of baseball into the rest of her life, right. which is work. Which is work, and but what I'm what I hear you describing is is having a uh, a sense of coherence between my internal experience and what's happening outside of me. I can make sense of it, mm -hmm. right? Which which makes it which brings me to reading your research on working with schizophrenics and the idea of starting to make sense of the stories that are coming that that the, the experience they're having. Right, because the in yeah. the the Western experience is that these stories are are nonsensical. Take drugs, and the way I, I read your research on it's like, well, how do we make sense of the stories? Right, because because they do make sense on some level, and we're looking for that level on which they make sense. And and maybe maybe people, some people are are explorers of other dimensions. Maybe they're just dream voyagers, um, but they're bringing back this rich data, this rich information that, that we need to make sense of, or at least respect or contemplate or um, sit quietly in the face of, and, and not say, well, that's just the rantings of a lunatic. I don't have to listen to this at all. And and really, that's the difference I think between the indigenous and the and the European derived, I should say, contemporary European derived approach yeah. to these kinds of experiences. The indigenous approach says, "Wow, you've been somewhere and brought back something profound. Now let's see if we can figure it out together." Mm. And and the European derived approach says, "You're nuts. This doesn't mean anything at all. Forget about it." Let's let's suppress it. Let's ignore it. Let's move forward without it. And and I think you know, the former approach is conducive to healing, recovery, recuperation. And and the European derived approach is about maintenance, suppression, um, not getting better. We get better when we tell good stories about what's happened to us, and weave those stories into our larger life narrative so that it all makes sense, has meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. Without that, we feel fragmented and, and 
discombobulated. Mm -hmm. Right. So I hear you describing that, you know, you, I was going to ask you that, but you just described it in the, in the indigenous perspective. The story is, is naturally fits the context, the community. There's a way in which it's accepted. And once again, this is, this is the research I read of yours about working with schizophrenic, which is trying to help not just the actual individual recognize the story has meaning, but also the, the community or the, the way in which the people around that person, that individual, sees them as someone who has is having an experience that has validity versus having an irrelevant experience. I see if somebody's having experience. <laughs> just get all the dogs to start to bark just to... <laughs> When the spirits come to visit, the dogs go wild. Yeah, well, we, we kicked ours out, but they barked in the background for a little bit too. So, so you know, are you? This is specific research of yours that I've read, where you know, how much are you having to really work with the larger than the individual when you're working? You know, when you're doing this is alternative to medication working with schizophrenics, right? Is what the what I don't I, forget, I don't remember the name of the research, but I know. You, you know what I'm talking about. Right, yeah, it was it was published in twenty fourteen. Yeah. And um I think that we're working with the worlds that they're visiting. And some of the worlds are fantastic and some of the worlds are hideous. And we're trying to understand what what are the you know, where do they go? Sorry. I don't know what's going on. It gets us to all laugh. And they, everybody, all dog lovers are happy. <laughs> yeah, we don't. She's usually quite quiet. So. Nice. It's good. Anyway. You know, dogs can see spirits better. Yeah, they, they sure can. Yeah, there's no humans out there. So, um, speaking speaking of alternative worlds, you know, dogs can see these alternative worlds and react to them, and and so can people who get labeled crazy. And so we're we're trying to respect the worlds that they visit, and hear from them about how these worlds work, and and never at the same time say, look. You know, we we got to pay attention to the world where your feet are, and we got to keep you walking in that world, and doing the things that are required to keep you out of hospital and jail, in the world where your feet are planted. Mm. So how do we do that? And I think that's that's you know, we construct a story for how to live in the world where their feet are planted. Even as their their minds visit these other worlds, where their feet cannot go. Mm. So then, I, what I hear is that you 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 val you're, you're seeing a value their story where their minds are going, which create, creates a connection. You could call it therapeutic, but we don't need to say that. It's just connection, a human connection, and then begin to 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 weave. A, how do we connect you to the earth, to here, to the now, to the real, without any way dissing the stories that are going on in the head.
right? You don't, it, it's, it's a both and versus an either or. Right. Right. Exactly. Hmm. And it seems that from what I understand that of that particular research, it's, it's been, it's been very effective. Oh yeah. The people that keep coming, you know, the ones who hang in there get better. I mean, it, you know, I have complete faith that people can improve. And, and the hard thing is that some people run away when they start to get better because it's, it's forbidden to be better, you know, for whatever reason. Um, one woman couldn't feel better because her relatives died in the Holocaust and they suffered hideously. So it was not acceptable for her to feel better. Even though, as I pointed out to her, maybe her relatives would feel better knowing that their sacrifice had allowed her to feel better. Mm -hmm. Didn't buy that. So, so it's complicated, but yeah, people hang in there and continue the conversation. They get better. And, and the question is, really, how do we keep the conversation alive? How do we keep them engaged in, in this field of conversation? Because so much of what's called schizophrenia or psychosis is a monologue where people just, just talk without engaging the other, without listening. You know, to have a dialogue, you actually have to stop talking and listen. And that takes some effort. So, so this is what we work toward is moving monologue to dialogue. You know, appreciating the other in the dialogue and, and um, learning to appreciate the extraordinary worlds and still get to the grocery store and back. Right. right. That's interesting. So moving from just having the monologue to the dialogue. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I imagine that staying engaged, I mean, on the one level, there's the, there's the, there's the actual... Uh, connectedness and the interpersonal and then the other is the context like somebody's got to pay for it or somebody's got to get the person to there and back and there's all that kind of gross physical reality stuff that doesn't seem to support you know the therapeutic relationship to yeah. use a, yeah. a generic term in some yeah. way and, and you know for that paper most of the work was not paid for it was mostly free work because in those days, Medicaid wouldn't pay for psychotherapy for psychosis because it was considered um, frivolous, unimportant, mm -hmm. meaningless. Mm -hmm. Only drugs were, were important. Mm -hmm. So we did the bulk of that, of the work for that paper for free. Do you feel like that that's changing? That is that, that did that paper have an impact on the, you know, the ability of people to get non-drug treatments? Um, I doubt that we had much of an impact, okay. but but I think that you know, if anything, it will be Obamacare that moves people toward being able to receive non-drug treatments mm. because Obamacare says that people with mental illness should get the same level of care and reimbursement that people with diabetes get. Mm. So when that's implemented, then we have a lot more room 
to work with people because whatever the diabetes deductible is, that's the same deductible for mental health and for psychotherapy. And so, so implementation of Obamacare has the potential to, to give us the opportunity to work with, psychotherapeutically with a lot more people. The other, the other possibility too, we, we appear to be moving in, at least in Medicare, toward capitation, which means that as a clinic, as a medical home, we get um, a set amount of money to take care of a bunch of people. And, and suddenly the rules of the game change. So if I can do things that save money, then suddenly I'm a hero instead of annoying. Because under the old rules, the more billings that I could generate, the more heroic I am. But under the new, the new capitation rules, the more I can save money, the more heroic I am. So what if psychotherapy saves money? I mean, I think it does. Right. It's helping people to change the craziness in their lives. Right. Actually ripples outward to right. save the healthcare system money, which at least 100 papers support, you know, 100 research studies support this yeah. idea. Yeah. Then there's a whole other potential for, for change. Yeah. And, um, and I'm optimistic that that capitation will do more for radicalizing the healthcare system than anything that's come before. You know, and um, in the hospital where I work, you know, I I wrote today to some high mucky mucks about, hey, what do you guys think about getting together to talk about? Um, how we could handle delirium better and thereby decrease length of stay and thereby save you money. And suddenly I've got three vice presidents who want to meet with me. So, um, you know, the new, these changes are, are potentially really positive because I think good work saves money, you know, long term. Right. And well, this is what there was an article this weekend about, you know, expensive drugs and the value. What is the value of the treatment and and starting to measure from, you know, a values based evaluation of interventions and in the way you're describing. And in the way the article, all of a sudden, like something like chiropractic becomes highly valuable. It's because it's so cost effective for something like chronic pain or you know back pain or things like that. So, but this is the other reason why I feel like health coaching is such a good opportunity because people need so much, you know, supportive care to make the kind of changes to do, you know, nutritional work or fitness work or piece like that. And that's just why um, I think health coaching will emerge as a field that will naturally fit a more values, value-driven healthcare system. But it needs to be health coaching that includes making room for the story, not just make coaching people on how many, you know, what food they eat or what exercise. Yeah, yeah because I, I, I was talking to a clinician today, you know, and, and in our healthcare system, if your body mass index is under 30, which means you're not obese, 
um, you get a $200 credit from, you know, for your health insurance. And this woman was saying to me, you know, that she wasn't going to qualify and she didn't care because she ate with her husband because he had had cancer. And since he had cancer, he craved ice cream. And it was the one thing that really meant something to him. Mm. He ate ice cream four times a day. And she ate it with him. And and this was their shared joy. Right. That he's still alive in the face of cancer. And no one's going to take that away from her. Mm. You know, and that's a powerful story. Mm. Now, if you're a health coach and, and, and of course she has diabetes and her and the ice cream isn't very good for her diabetes. So um if you're gonna take that away from her, you've gotta find something better to put in its place for both of them. Right. You can't just say stop eating sugar. Exactly. The approach doesn't go very far. Right. Well, this is this sort of cycles back to your baseball story, in a way that you have to find their baseball, <laughs> whatever yeah. that is for the yeah. two of them. Right. Yeah. Yes, that is actually uh, what what we're teaching with my, you know, with the various faculty people on the call. Actually, I'm wondering, Reggie, uh, you've been listening along. I haven't made any room. I wonder if you have a question that you want to throw in here. I'm putting Reggie on the spot, but. We do move towards to see if other folks have questions. So, Reggie, do you want to do you have anything you want to put in? There is one question I'd love to ask you, Lewis, and it's just it's a bit of a, in a way, it's a non sequitur, but I think almost everything is a sequitur when we get down to it. Um, how, how do you hold the relationship between the individual stories of, let's say, individual patients or clients and the bigger cultural stories and perhaps even the biggest single story that none of us fully understands? Uh, how do you, but, but mainly, you know, the, the individual story with the cultural story. How do you work with those two together, if you do? Well, I think, I think one has to appreciate that, that the cultural stories were born into them. And we might not even recognize them. And, and that we have to become aware of them. You know, um, I've got an I've got a, uh, example for that. Um, a woman came to see me because she'd been in psychoanalysis for two years to figure out why she always chose the wrong men. And she hadn't figured it out. And, and she was running out of money, you know, three times a week for, for two years. And, and she told me the story and she said, okay, what's wrong with me? And I said, nothing's wrong with you. You're fine. And she said, what? Then why do I choose wrong men? I said, okay, so what were the romantic movies that you watched when you were 14? James Dean, etc. You know, and, and so her, her whole idea of love, romantic love, had to do with bad boys. And, and, and with this sort of, of, of um, Wuthering Heights idea, you know, Pride and Prejudice, etc., that the love of a good woman will transform a bad boy into a good boy. But that mostly only happens in novels. You know, it's a literary device. It's really pretty uncommon in real life. And, and so I did a couple things with her. And, and this was a sophisticated person who could handle these assignments. It's okay. We came up with 10 movies on the theme of the love of a good woman transforming a bad boy. You know, so Bridget Jones' Diary, you know, Pride and Prejudice, 
um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I also asked her to go out and look for people in which, look for people who had relationships in which a bad boy had been transformed to a good boy by the love of a woman. So it turned out she couldn't find one. And so we were able to say, look, you know, you were born into this cultural story about love and it actually is wrong. It doesn't work. Too bad, you know? And so if you try to perform it, you will get the results that you've been getting. And so perhaps you should change the story. Perhaps you should only go out with people you're not attracted to for a while and see what that's like. See what you learn from doing that. Because these guys that you're attracted to, you know, that's the beginning of a movie that doesn't go anywhere. Hmm. And, you know, so, um, so she tried that. And, and eventually, you know, and she fell in love with a guy that she wasn't originally attracted to. And they got married and lived happily ever after. So, uh, and it cost a lot less than two years of psychoanalysis. <laughs> so, you know, it was a matter of looking at the larger cultural stories and saying, hey, you know, do these really work? You know, and, and think about some of the stories that our parents watched like how to marry a millionaire, three coins and a fountain, you know, all of the Katherine Hepburn movies. Um, wow, you know, they were doomed. You know, our parents were doomed from the get-go. So, I mean, it's a wonder that any of them stayed together. So I think, you know, the answer to the question is, yeah, I mean, that's part of the work, is to become aware of the stories that we were dropped into. And we don't even know that they're stories. We think it's just truth. We think it's just the way the world is. And, and it takes some reflection, some stepping back to discover that, oh, that's just an idea that people had about the world. And it's a huge, powerful idea. But maybe it doesn't work. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thanks for that. Reggie, do you want to do instructions on if folks want to ask questions? Yeah, so if anybody does have a question for, for Lewis, you can uh, put your cursor down where it says participants, and you can actually um, raise your hand down there if you want to do that. Um, or you can send David a quick uh, chat message. Um, again, if you put your cursor down at the bottom of the screen, um, you can see both the chat logo and the uh, participants logo. So please raise your hand if you have a question and David will unmute you and we'll welcome you. So we'll leave a tiny space to see if anybody wants to ask a question before we could just keep asking questions. And Lewis, I thank you for for doing your you're certainly answering a lot of my questions. So um, we, I will. I, it's it's important for us to mention that you do. Is the new book already out, or is it coming out? Remapping the mind. Well, remapping the mind. It's on Amazon, and there's a Kindle. Mm -hmm. there's a Kindle 
and it's and it, it's it seems like you're taking narrative into the the, the neurobiology in ways can you just tell oh, us a little bit yeah supporting narrative with neurobiology mm. you know mm -hmm. i don't think you need the neurobiology to do the work right right so you're reporting it in a way it's sort of a little bit what you're describing before reminds me of rick hansen you know must know rick hansen's work at this stage of the game yeah so it's a rewiring positive rewire positive neuroplasticity plasticity is his language right well, i had to jump jump in for a second if i could lois mcnorton has her hand up if we could get lois unmuted she has a question for lois okay hi lois um, hi, I sit with dementia patients at uh, hospice, and when you were talking about the stories that schizophrenics tell, it made me curious about uh, working with the narratives, the stories that dementia patients uh, tell. I'm curious if you have anything to say about that. Oh, sure. I mean, I think they're voyaging in extraordinary realities. And some of the things they bring back are fascinating. And, and um, it doesn't necessarily help them to tie their shoes or put food on the plates. But, but there are stories that are worthy of respect and admiration. And um, I think it matters to respect people and admire their adventures and their stories. And, and um, there's there's a, a, a couple guys, um, Stuart Hameroff and Roger Penrose are, uh, Hameroff is at the University of Arizona and Penrose is, is um, I think at Oxford University. And they talk about how um, when the microtubules break down, which is what happens in, in dementia, that the tau-related proteins begin to untangle or, or actually to tangle, to, to become chaotic as opposed to or, orderly, that you lose your focus in this reality and you begin to wander into other realities. And they have this whole quantum theory of consciousness that's fascinating, that's, that's worthy of everyone reading. Their papers are available at the Center for Consciousness Studies website of the University of Arizona. And, um, you know, for me, this is what's happening for a lot of people in these circumstances that they're, they're tied to this reality is untangling and they're wandering about in the universe and, and reporting extraordinary findings, visiting dead relatives, you know, um, uncovering great conspiracies, um, you know, things that are worthy of listening to. It's just so many people are afraid of it. Well, you know, our, our mainstream American culture is afraid of anything that's outside the ordinary. And, and we're, we're, focused on locking up extraordinary people, sweeping them away, keeping them mu muzzled, muffled, quiet. Um, we're really anxious about the possibility that, 
that the universe is more than materialistic. Um, and we might not know everything. There might be uncertainty. And so we have the certainty police, you know, who run around trying to lock anyone up who, who makes us feel uncertain. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's as relevant to psychosis as it is to dementia. True. Yeah. And when they drug people to keep them quiet, it's distressing. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and at least in Maine, I don't know about the rest of the country, but at least here in Maine, we really, we really use a minimum of drugs and, and only when the behavior is physically threatening to self or others. That, that just being bizarre is okay. You're allowed. You know, and that the drugs are only for the kind of agitation that, that is dangerous. And I, and I hope the rest of the country is that way too. Thank you. So we're near the top of the hour. We have one more question here from Sylvie. So uh, Sylvie, do you have a question for Lewis? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm new to that field of health coaching, yet I'm a coach. Uh, so about how to uncover the stories of our coaching client, you know, I, my assumption is that we just go by intuition and dialogue, but just if my assumption is wrong, is there a way that research, you know, prefers about how to uncover stories or not? I write about that, I write about that in my book, Narrative Medicine, and also the Narrative Psychiatry book and the Remapping the Mind book. And, and there's some questions that we ask. And so what made you think that? Or how did you come to think that way? How did you come to believe that? Or, or what experiences have you had that led you to conclude that, to make that conclusion? Um, or who do you know who believed that? Who do you know who thought like that? Or, um, you know, an example I've used before is my mother. My mother will not sweat. You know, my mother grew up in an era when ladies glowed, they did not sweat. And my mother had an aortic valve replacement and the cardiologist threatened to make her sweat. So she hid the referral to cardiopulmonary rehab and refused to go and still has not gone to her detriment because she wouldn't sweat. And in my world, you know, women sweat. Hey, it's cool. You know, women athletes, you know. You know, it's great. Um, but in her world, no. So how did she learn that? Well, growing up in Kentucky in the 1930s and 40s, you know, it was really important to, to shift. You know, she was in the lower class where everybody sweated because they had to work hard. And the goal was to get to the upper class where no one had to sweat because they didn't have to work physically. They didn't have to do manual labor. So, so there's a context for her beliefs. Unfortunately, it didn't matter much because I was her son and she wasn't going to listen to me anyway. But, but I have some understanding of the story behind why she won't go to cardiopulmonary rehab and sweat. You know, and it allows me to be a little more compassionate for her suffering, even though I think she should go sweat and get better.
you know, in my world, data shows that if you do cardiopulmonary rehab, you recover faster and live longer. But um, that's not going to happen because of hers, because of how she grew up and what she internalized and what she learned and how she sees the world. So as a coach, you know, you could coach her till you're blue in the face and she's not going to sweat. <laughs> Thank you. But well, Sylvia, it's interesting because we use, you know, I use narrative medicine as one of the texts in the class. Sylvia's, a, it, it works with me, uh, Lewis, and I actually have the health coaches read a couple of chapters out of narrative medicine because I think it's so applicable to what we're doing as health coaches, just to give you some feedback as we're winding down to the end of this call. And we really work with the, with the, stu the, the students. It's a one-year program at Maryland University of Integrative Health uh, to, deal, to, to work with their own narratives and get comfortable with narratives as they go out into the, to, the, to become health professional health coaches because they have a habit of coming in more as exercise coaches in a way. You know, what you just said, you can, you can try and coach her until she's blue in the face your mom and she's not going to change but if you you know if you deal with her story who knows what might happen <laughs> right the potential change wrong generation maybe we could have her her uh, her her code you got Catherine Hepburn that's good I need a Catherine Hepburn mask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we're at the top of the hour, and you've been very generous with your time. So I want to say very much. Uh, we would. We've got to definitely. Uh, Lewis has a website, which LewisMelmadrona.com, I believe, is the website. You can see a lot of material up there. You're still associated with the Coyote Institute, I believe, Lewis. Part of Coyote. Yeah, and as well as the as the the, the new book remapping the mind, which is uh, I'm going to have to go read after the, the the one that I'm currently reading. But uh, I find that they're they're very easily readable books, and because you you tell lots of wonderful stories as part of your way of teaching us, teaching the reader. There's a wonderful weaving of the science as but at the same time, there's the stories that heal. And so I find them very healing for me. So uh, I'm very grateful for you to take the time to share your work with us. Thank you. Great to be a part of this. And so I think, uh, folks, we're going to come to a close here. And uh, this, this is the, uh, our monthly call, Vital Conversations. Uh, and we are looking forward to next month. We're a week early uh, with Robert Keegan, who's going to be talking about immunity to change and its application to uh, weight loss, which is a fascinating conversation. Uh, so I hope that you all join us again as well. The recordings for this particular uh, conversation will be available by tomorrow. So I want to thank everyone uh, for joining us. And thanks, Reggie, and thanks, Lewis. Thank you all. Thank you, thank you Lewis. Yes, thank you. Okay.